Thanks for listening to the Family Perspectives podcast brought to you by the BYU School of Family Life Student Editorial Board. I'm Madeline Sorensen. And I'm Tyler Clancy. And today we'll be interviewing Dr. Denai Cheney. Dr. Denai Cheney was born in Guadalajara, Mexico. From a young age, Dr. Cheney's family started traveling, leading her to live in different areas in Mexico, the United States, and Brazil. This created a love for cultures and languages. Upon graduating high school, she moved to Provo to start at BYU, where she completed her undergraduate degree in psychology and graduate degree in marriage and family therapy. It was during her graduate work that she married Brian in the Salt Lake Temple. Together, they have two boys. In her free time, Dr. Cheney enjoys dancing, reading, cooking, singing, and laughing out loud. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and we hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, welcome, Dr. Cheney. We're so excited to have you on today, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation. Um, so I saw something interesting in your bio was that you were born in Mexico, but you had the opportunity growing up to travel around Mexico and around the world um, as a youth. What was your experience like growing up, traveling around to different cultures and places across the globe? And what led you here to BYU to study and eventually teach? Thank you so much for having me today. That's a great question. I think it really kind of summarizes uh, the things that are important to me. So yes, I've been really fortunate to to be able to experience travel. So as I think about this, I think that my first international experience with travel, I was actually less than one year old. Wow. <laughs> that was the first time. <laughs> yeah, my parents uh, took me to Disney World. So okay. I was in a stroller and everything. So that was... Yeah, the beginning of my international career, if you want to call it. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, growing up, I, you know, I was born in the city of Guadalajara in in the state of Jalisco in in Mexico. And uh, I was there for around, I don't know, four years. And then we moved here to Provo briefly as my, my parents were called as mission presidents to go to Brazil. So we lived here for a little while. I honestly don't remember how long it was, but it was long enough that we were like in this condo. So I remember that was like my first exposure living for an extended period of time somewhere that was mm-hmm. not home. Mm-hmm. And uh, after that, we basically packed our bags. We we lived in Brazil for three years and that was a wonderful experience. Uh, after that, yeah, we traveled across when we came back different states in Mexico and my parents have always been very, very adamant about travel and being able to experience different cultures, see how other people live. So my family is actually very international. My sister's married to a Canadian. Oh, wow. So we travel when I was 14 <laughs> in Canada, all you know, so we are all over North America. And, you know, I've been really blessed to be able to have different travels, you know, in, in Europe and you know, I lived in my senior year of high school. I was able to live in Italy for you know, a period oh, of you know, okay. seven months. So, so yeah, it's I've been really fortunate to experience that. But I, I honestly, I think that's one of the greatest joys for me in life, to be able to be somewhere where the culture is different and be able to be with the people. So what led me to BYU, I think it was my sister, who's much older than me. She came to BYU, then my brother came to BYU. So it was kind of like, 
Of course I'm the coming to BYU. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we all bleed blue in my family. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it was ever a question for me um, to go to BYU. Now, teaching, that is different because, you know, I graduated as a clinician. And I was doing that for many years up until actually the person who was my chair in my graduate program contacted me and was like, okay, you know, we have this class, we have this opening, we really need someone who understands cultures, mm -hmm. families across, mm -hmm. you know, different mm -hmm. cultures, and we really want you to teach it. So I never saw myself, I remember when I was a graduate student, he was like, I see you teaching in the future. You know, and I laughed. And you're like, no. No, I'm like, I'm a clinician through and through. You know, I'm going to be in the trenches with the people. <laughs> but it was actually a welcome relief. You know, I specialize in trauma. So that's a heavy topic, you know. So mm -hmm. having something that I could use, you know, another passion of mine without being in the trenches all the time was a very welcome thing. Right. So a little bit of a, I don't want to say an escape, but kind of somewhat of a relief or yes. a, a, an outlet where you can kind of, De, you know, decompress and share your experiences and knowledge with others and bring the next group that's going to be in the trenches up. Right. Kind of. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think the most, as you were talking, the most jealous I felt was I was thinking, I'm like, man, you probably have had some amazing food <laughs> in your life being living in Italy, Brazil, Mexico, and all over Mexico. Um, and then even Disney World too. So, <laughs> um, well, was there anything I'm trying to phrase this question correctly. With your travels and your experiences as a youth, did anything in particular spark a desire to research and study management family therapy? Or was it something that came later in life when you were already at BYU? Right. So I actually feel that I'm very fortunate that I knew I wanted to be a therapist when I was like 14. Wow. Um, that's when we moved again. <laughs> so I yeah. moved a lot. From Guadalajara to Mexico City. So I actually call Mexico City home. That's where I did junior high and high school. That's where I learned how to drive, you know, all this mm -hmm. kind of ride of passages. Um, and I had a friend, you know, very close friend who had been really negatively impacted by her parents' divorce. So she had a lot of like suicidal behaviors, oh. you know, cutting behaviors. Mm. And most of your group of, you know, girlfriends, like there came a point in which they were like, well, we don't want to be around you, right? Like that is a dark place to be because she was constantly depressed. And I noticed that I'm like, you know, I felt perfectly comfortable sitting with her in her pit. You know, like I remember we would skip class because she was like, I, you know, one of those like suicidal episodes. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, let's just skip class. Which was not great, right? But like, <laughs> yeah, hopefully your parents yeah. aren't listening to. Oh, I'm, well, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they know. <laughs> so we would skip class and just sit. I sit outside in the grass, and she would just, you know, unravel in front of me. And I'm like, well, there's nothing really, you know, at that point, 14 year old, that I can say to you that mm. is going to change your life, right, dramatically. But I can sit with you. And that was such a realization that I'm like, I don't feel uncomfortable. I don't want to run away from it. In fact, I feel like, you know, very much at peace with what is going on in here. Yeah. And so it was actually my dad on a drive home where I told him, you know, I had spent the night at her you know, place and it was a rough night. Cause... So I'm making it sound like it happened often. It didn't. But when it did, it was bad. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I had spent the night and she had told me, you know, the latest attempts that she had made, you know, to and her life. So we had spent a good deal of, you know, then I just kind of processing through that. 
and my dad was like and you weren't scared at all like that she was gonna try it while you were there with her. right and i'm like well it crossed my mind but i wasn't necessarily scared of it mm. you know because i knew that i'm like i've talked to her enough that i could probably calm her down until you know i wake up her mom and then she takes over right uh and she my dad actually just mentioned she's like you know you could probably do this for a living mm. and that was like wow Bang, you know, like, uh, yeah, yes, I could click. probably do this for a living. So after that, he was like, okay, I mean, I didn't know exactly I wanted to be a marriage and family therapist. That didn't come until I was here, but I knew I wanted to be a therapist of mm. some kind. <laughs> that is, that is really powerful to see as a 14 year old, when you're able to be there with someone and be that rock for them, that, you know, kind of that shoulder to lean on when they're going through such a hard time. You knew at that point that was that became your vision, and you were able to pursue that. Thank you, yeah. thank you for sharing that with us because that is a that is a sensitive experience. Thank so you. I really appreciate You're that. Welcome. Well, I want to shift gears for a moment and and dive into our subject matter today, which I believe will be of interest to a lot of our listeners. When we were discussing what should be our focus today, um, you came up with perfectionism. So can you give a little bit of a background on what the definition? in a clinical sense of perfectionism is and why this could be harmful to individuals and relationships. So, you know, I, I think when they asked me, you know, which you know topic I will want to discuss, perfectionism was the, one of the first ones that came to mind. I would say with few exceptions, most of my clients struggle with perfectionism wow. <laughs> in some degree or another. And so I don't know if I have a, necessarily a definition of perfectionism in a clinical sense, but the way it's manifested, you will usually see as, you know, the expectation is perfection. Okay. Ex perfection. And the problem is obviously as human beings, we can't achieve that. <laughs> right. So then the end result is not, oh, you made a mistake. How can we learn from that? The end result is you are a worthless human being. Wow. You know, so wow. you can't do anything right. So it's more of this. I'm constantly seeking to achieve perfection. And since I can't achieve that, then I'm constantly punishing myself and feeling like I can't, you know, like there's something wrong with me. I'm broken over small things, you know, um, with moms, you know, losing their temper, you know, with kids, um, with teenagers, you know, that they can achieve whatever it is, you know, the expectation that they feel culturally, you know, with parents mm -hmm. and they're depressed or very anxious. So that's the problem. I think perfectionism in and of itself, you know, it, it's it's just an idea. But the way I see it manifested is usually, you know, the client's very depressed or the client's extremely anxious to the point of like several panic attacks, you know, just so it can be really, really difficult for a person to be constantly on this state of like, I feel like such a worthless human being. I need to be perfect in order to feel good about myself. So the results or how it looks for each individual of perfectionism can look different, but it goes back to that same idea where if you do not achieve perfection, you have no worth. You are, and you're going to be constantly distressed and in that, mm -hmm. that, that makes a lot of sense. Well, in, in your experience, and maybe this is uh, an unanswerable mm -hmm. question or a, a different question, depending on who you're asking, but where do these powerful feelings and expectations of perfectionism come from? Is perfectionism more pronounced in certain socioeconomic statuses or groups or specific cultures or maybe even genders? Do you see any uh, differences there? Mm, 
So that's a good question. I mean, where it comes from, it, it is really varied, but I have to say that just in Utah, <laughs> mm. we do have this overall idea of kind of perfection. Just, I think, people who who live in, um, I don't want to say LDS, but really, I think sometimes we get skewed a little bit because we are to become better and, you know, we want to achieve that perfection eventually. So I think the problem is, you know, it can come culturally because sometimes like I've known clients with my gosh, like they're trying so hard to be perfect. And there's even a, now a diagnosis for, you know, religious scrupulosity, which is wow. like an aspect of perfection. Like, am I sinning? Am I doing this? Am I sinning? If I'm doing this, am I sinning? You know, so it's just an extreme version of perfectionism. And I meet their parents and their parents are the most laid back, you know, super chill. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? So it's culturally okay. and sometimes, yes, from mom and dad. It can okay. be from mom and dad. Um, it tends to be more acute for people who are just naturally more anxious, you know, just naturally more sensitive, naturally, you know, more of that kind of personality that is more black and white. But there's no set of things that I have seen like, oh, if this person's like this, that means, you know, okay. for sure. Okay. You know, so I think it's a combination of different things. But like I said, I think I see it enough that I'm like, oh, that culturally there needs to be something right. going on. Uh, as far as, you know, socioeconomic status and gender, I think the way it's manifested looks differently, especially, you know, male, you know, and males and females. But the root issue what we just discussed, it looks exactly the same. Wow. That's really interesting that that cultural, um, you know, influence can can play a part in that as well as parents. And so there's other factors. So really, there's nothing that you can put your finger on. And, and like you said, and say X plus you know, Y equals Z. Um, interesting. Okay. That's, that's really insightful. I think that's really good for our viewers to, or listeners to hear. Um, so, and you kind of alluded to this before, but what is the difference between someone that might say to you, well, Dr. Cheney, why wouldn't I want to strive to be better every single day? If I'm not doing that, I'm just, I'm not growing. What's the difference between perfectionism and constantly growing? I don't know. Um, if there's a word for that, but what, what would you say is the difference between a healthy growth and debilitating perfectionism? Well, growth allows plenty of room for humanness and failure. Every mm. single person that I've had as a client who is a perfectionist, you know, who has issues with all of these things we've been discussing. Failure is like the trigger word. We cannot do failure. Uh, we don't do failure. And when we do failure, which inevitably comes it's horrible Mm. and there's something wrong with me. And, you know, so, you know, it's that kind of thing that I'm like, well, of course you're going to (laughs) fail. That's part of humanity. Right. Right. And it does. And the perfectionism does not give any room for that. And when there is failure, it is more of this punishing, shameful, you suck. Yeah. Destructive kind of thing. Instead of like I failed and that's never going to feel good. Hmm. So I'm not saying, Oh my gosh, you know, in this growth mentality, failure feels, you know, wonderful. It, it doesn't. But that's wow. the point, you know, that you allow it because where can I learn from this, right? The pain, I feel like that's the other part of it. You know, we really run away from the so-called negative emotions when I'm like, you know, those are part of our human mm. experience and so necessary for growth um, that when we shun, you know, shun them away, like, what I tend to, you know, one of my favorite writers is Elizabeth Gilford. And what she says is perfectionism 
you know, per- people who are perfectionists are not doers, <laughs> mm. right? Because as the first sign of failure, you stop. <laughs> Wow. You know, you <laughs> that's stop. That's a great quote. Yeah, you stop. And that's what I've seen. You know, it's paralyzing. It's paralyzing. paralyzing. Perfectionism, paralyzing perfectionism. Yes. That could be a great book yeah, title. Absolutely. That could be your next book title. Well, awesome. <laughs> I, think you just, I think you just gave me and our listeners some free uh, therapy because that was powerful. <laughs> that was powerful. A growth mindset allows for failure. It's just part of the process. Absolutely. Um, I think about a difference between, a, you know, in an athletic setting. If there was a quarterback who, you know, takes wins and losses but learns from everything versus a quarterback who loses one game and he you know, freaks out or, you know, loses his cool and then can't perform uh, and, and wake up on Monday morning and get back at it. That Absolutely. that is a really powerful thing. So with that being said, and I what I've heard about the difference between, you know, the wholeness model versus perfectionism is that the self your self-worth isn't measured by achievements, rather it's intrinsic. So as a therapist and with your research background, how do you think individuals can build intrinsic self-worth and not give that up to the outside influences? That is a great question. I think that is, um, that is difficult to do, honestly, just, you know, because worth in, you know, culturally, worldly definitions does involve achievements and not just any achievement. It's achievement that the world values as achievement. Mm. So you have to kind of change in a way your your worldview of what achievement actually means to you. And that might not be able to mm. be calculated. You might not get paid for it. Nobody might even notice, you know, your growth. That's the thing. It needs to be very much I'm doing things or I'm doing whatever it is that you're striving to do because I want to be better. Like I acknowledge my humanness and I accept it, you know, and I'm working on this and nobody might notice that. And that's okay. So intrinsic work, it really cannot be something that you get paid for, something you get a diploma, something you get a trophy, something that people can easily see and compliment you on. Um, Just because, again, those things, I think, really set you up for a lot of disappointment, (laughs) right? So (laughs) it it needs to be something like I I have worth, you know, and I think, again, you know, for a lot of our listeners who are LDS, like that is what we teach, right? Mm -hmm. That is intrinsic Mm -hmm. work just based on who you are. And what I tell my clients, like that does not say based on who you are when you are at your best, <laughs> right? Wow. You know, it is when you are at your wow. worst as well. Mm. And that does not change. That does not change whether, you know, how many times you failed, how many times you're like, man, I have been at my worst a lot lately. That does not change. That does not change. So it, I think it is difficult. You have to be constantly kind of realigning your mind in your heart in the right direction because the world tells you, the opposite. That is exactly correct. I was literally just thinking, I wish we could put this, uh, put your, your words here on a loudspeaker out over all of campus to hear, because uh, that is a, that is something you run into as a college student. And I think even beyond as, you know, we kind of fall into that trap of running the rat race and keeping up with the Joneses. It's the next achievement. It's the, it's the next promotion. It's the next job. And what you're saying is your worth isn't measured to what you do. It's measured to who you are. 
And that is a powerful statement. So thank you for that. Um, one kind of looping back to the beginning of our conversation, something that you said that you were recruited to teach because of your knowledge and deep breadth of cultures. With that being said, I know in your classes, you teach a lot about a skill called cultural competence. In your words, what is cultural competence and why is it such an important skill in marriage and family therapy? Uh, this is, yeah, I could talk a lot about this for a long time, but I think you cannot speak of cultural competence without speaking of cultural humility. And for me, really, I, I don't really love the word cultural competence because for me, kind of take the meaning of at some point you become an expert, you become competent in a culture that is not yours. And I don't feel like that's true. <laughs> you know, like living in, in different countries, I've been living in the U.S. for a very long time. And yet I'm still finding myself surprised by some aspects, you know, especially right now with recent elections and how people have chosen to kind of express, you know, who they favored is very different from every other place I've lived in. So I found myself feeling surprised and trying to understand, you know, why, why is it, you know? So I think that requires cultural humility, really, you know, understanding that unless it's your own culture, and even then I think we're oblivious to our own culture, <laughs> you know, really understanding that we need to be willing to listen to those whose culture actually belongs to, you know, and I think that is very important, especially, I mean, in all aspects of life, I think right now, but in therapy, that is very important because you can do real damage if you are not culturally humble. If you go in with predispositions, with an idea of like, I read a chapter about your country, so now I know everything about you. Like, that's going to go really It's a really great way to better. start a conversation, right? <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's, and it, unfortunately, though, I've seen it in different places I've worked in, in which, you know, several things about culture, about marriage, about parenting were not understood. And they're basing that as like, this is bad because we are looking at it from American, you know, lens culture. Lens. So that, like, that creates a lot of problems, right? So I think really looking at it, trying as best we can, like, if I were you growing up in your circumstance, how would I look at this situation? Makes it much, much better for you to actually treat, to have relationships in general. Okay, so kind of what I'm hearing is almost like an informed empathy or trying to put yourself in someone's shoes and understand that even when you're trying to do that, you never will have their lived experience, mm -hmm. but trying your best. That really, yeah. your description to me stands out in a world so divided and hateful. You know, you turn on the news of, you know, just this turmoil and unrest, this idea of cultural humility. And I think too, another word would be appreciation mm -hmm. and respect, cultural respect really stands out to me as an act of love. It's like saying, hey, I, I know we're different, but I see you, I hear you, I respect you, and I'm willing to educate myself and go on this journey with you. And, and as in your words, sit in that pit with you. So take us to the therapist chair for a moment. What kind of things do you feel after really diving deep into someone's culture, their life, and their story? Oh, what kind of things do I feel? Um, it's still when someone bears their heart to me and bears their soul, and I, and I tell them this, like, your story, it's sacred to me. Because 
you know, for the most part, most of these people have not shared that story with a lot of people. And here they are sitting with a complete stranger. And for the most part, you know, getting very emotional, just sharing their soul and their hearts and their broken, you know, dreams. And for me, I'm like, I don't, I don't take that lightly. You know, I've been, you know, doing this, I've lost count, almost 13 years. Um, and it's still like when someone bears their story to me, I tell them, you know, your story is sacred. You're sharing it with me. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. So I think, like you say, you know, just alluding to that pit, like I am being welcomed into that pit, a pit that is not mine. So I enter it with a lot of respect, with a lot of, you know, it's, it's an honor, it's a privilege. And I do not take that lightly, whether that's in the therapy room or whether it's a conversation with someone, with a friend, family member. Um, I don't know. I feel like the world would be better if we took other people's stories whether you know we agree with them or not you know from that perspective of you know you're letting me in and i shouldn't take that for granted that is really really powerful and thank you for sharing with it i think now all of our listeners are like i i want to know more about dr shank she's, <laughs> she's a powerful powerful person here and can i love the idea of the sacred experiences because to each individual those experiences are you know, the most raw and just brings everything out of you of your whole life. And for you to, I think, I think I speak for all of us when we say we admire people like you who, uh, as you said, go into the trenches and sit with people in their, in their hardest time and hope to give them tools to, to work through it and to have this just be a, a moment in time and not defining moment for the rest of their life. So we're, we're running out of time here, but I think I'm legally obligated to ask this question since you are a marriage and family therapist. If you had to give couples or individuals one piece of advice for relationships, for dating, for marriage, what would it be? Uh, without a doubt, work on your own stuff. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, you know, I can do a lot of communication work, but the actual triggers that we experience in marriage and other relationships too, not just in marriage, but especially in marriage. I think most of us like, I have no issues and then get married and realize, <laughs> oh gosh, I do have issues. Um, most of the time, I wouldn't say all the time, but I would say most of the time, they're personal things. We are getting triggered not because exactly what the person said or the way they said it is if we were somewhere, somebody else with no history of whatever we have experienced, that might not have been an issue. But because we do have our experiences and our pains and our insecurities, it is an issue for us. So I think what I say to everyone is like, man, you, if you have had a difficult upbringing, whatever that may be, or you realize, you know, there are certain things about my family that I don't want to bring with me. I guarantee you, you're bringing them with you. You know, you're, it's coming along. It's coming along. And it's best if you, you know, again, have that humility to say, you know, this is more about me than it is about you. And I need to kind of take a step back and realize why exactly is it that this is so triggering to me? And you will realize, yeah, it has to do with insecurity, belonging, you know, something that is very human. And we don't easily acknowledge that, especially when you're newlyweds, you know, you're you're still trying to kind of fill each other out. How do I talk right. about this? Navigate, yeah. Exactly. So I would say, you know, yeah, work on yourself. 
yeah and after you get married keep working on yourself you'll still notice like man that's still a trigger like <laughs> you know despite the best intentions right? right you're not trying to hurt my feelings but they still you know it still hurts so that again for me is like okay communication body to myself i need to work on this well there you have it relationship advice from a marriage and family therapist <laughs> work on yourself figure out your heart and 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 do that for the rest of your life. Absolutely. So. Well, thank you so much. This has been a spectacular conversation, and I've really appreciated you spending the time with us and our listeners today and sharing about perfectionism, cultural humility, and just the musings of your heart. And so we really, really appreciate that, and we look forward to having you back sometime soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to know more about Dr. Cheney or any of the classes she teaches at BYU, those links will be in the show notes. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns for us, please email us at byusflpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you have a great day.